Welcome to the Come Follow Me podcast for teens and for parents of teens, a podcast to supplement your weekly study of the Come Follow Me curriculum with thoughts, ideas, principles, stories, and questions all geared towards helping teenagers better follow Christ through their teenage years. Hey everybody, welcome once again to another edition of the Come Follow Me podcast for teens. I'm your host, Josh Downs. And uh, today's episode is episode 56. We're going to be taking a look at 1 Nephi chapters 11 through 15 this week under the theme, Armed with Righteousness and with the Power of God. Now, just a reminder that this week, the study and teaching guide, as well as the transcripts, will be available for purchase individually or through a subscription on my website, which is www.joshdowns.com. You can find that subscription link under Podcasts and Come Follow Me for Teens. I'm still putting all the information on the website together, so please be patient with me. It's quite the process just while I get everything set up and and put in place. I'll try to include links to everything in the show notes as well for you to access. Individually, the study and teaching guides I've decided will be $1.95 each, and we'll include a copy of the transcript from that particular episode. Or you'll be able to get access to all of them monthly for just $5 a month. So there's definitely some good savings to subscribe. In fact, you can also pay for the entire year up front for additional savings if you'd rather do that as well. And that will be $50 for yearly access. I've included in that membership weekly access to the transcripts, the study and teaching guides for each Come Follow Me lesson. There will also be some additional episodes that will be published for members only as well as early access to some future episodes and lessons as well. Also, I'll be including access to a community page where we can go and and discuss the weekly topics, principles, lesson plans, ideas, uh, activities, and experiences that we have each week from that particular week's Come Follow Me curriculum. I'm excited to offer this to you guys, and I certainly appreciate your support for those that will be joining me and supporting me in it. Doing it this way will allow me to keep the core podcast free for everyone. So thank you in advance for those that sign up and join the subscription and participate with us in the community page. Now to this week's material. Boy, there is a lot here. So good luck to us in trying to cover it in just three principles, but we're going to give it a shot at least the best that we can. There's so much for you to find and discover and therefore for your classes, if for those of you that that teach. And for those of you that are teaching, can I offer you just a little bit of advice on, on how to go about teaching? I would love, love, love to see Sunday school teachers begin to train our youth even more to study this material for themselves. Uh, I had a conversation with somebody in another ward that that referenced that in their Come Follow Me class, and this was the adult class, that the teacher just simply stood up at the beginning of class and said, okay, um, tell me what you guys liked from this week's study of Come Follow Me. And what proceeded from that point on was a discussion led not by the teacher as much as it was by the class, as individual after individual just continued to raise their hands and share what they liked about this verse or that verse. Or, and, and it just, that is how the best kind of teaching is done. It actually comes from the students, not the teacher. And so if you're teaching a group of young people, I might just offer this suggestion to do whatever you can to encourage them to read this material during the week 
And then at the first part of your lesson, just give them the opportunity to share what they saw, what they learned, what they experienced, what they caught in terms of fish, if you will. That could end up being a really great experience. Now, I can foresee it initially probably not being that way. There may be one or two hands that are raised, maybe none initially. But as you continue to give that opportunity and the kids share and have the experiences from sharing, it can easily grow into something that could basically take your entire lesson. And you just are prepared to take them to different places or to add or expound upon the things that they already shared. Have some additional questions ready to discuss based on things that they they bring up. But when we teach that way, we give a little more space to the Spirit being the teacher instead of us. Now, speaking of that, as part of the membership, I'm going to be putting together a series of podcast episodes just based on teaching different tips and practices and tools and techniques that I've learned over my years as a teacher to help those that have the responsibility of teaching, which really is all of us, right? Whether it's in a class or just within our own homes. So be watching for those as well. Now to this week's material. Here's the background of this week's study for Come Follow Me. When God has monumental work for his prophet to do, he often gives that prophet a monumental vision. Moses, John, Lehi, and Joseph Smith all had visions like that. Visions that expanded their minds and helped them to see just how grand and awe-inspiring God's work really is. Nephi also had one of these life-changing visions. He saw the ministry of the Savior, the future of Lehi's posterity in the Promised Land, and the latter-day destiny of God's work. After this vision, Nephi was better prepared for the work that lay ahead. And reading about this vision can help prepare you too. For God also has work for you to do in his kingdom. You are among the saints of the church of the Lamb, seen by Nephi, who were scattered upon all the face of the earth, and they were armed with righteousness and with the power of God in great glory. I love the the principle that this alludes to, and that, that God will give us visions and insight and revelation proportionate to the work that he has for us to do. Nephi had some pretty big work to do, so for him, it required a pretty big vision to be able to sustain him and support him as he went through some very difficult things and would do a very important work. But our work is no less important than his. Whatever area of influence that we have, our ability to impact God's children is just as important and just as significant and just as entitled to receiving visions and revelation for ourselves and for the work that we have to do. And there are some key principles from this week's vision that Nephi has that I'd like to focus on. There's, again, so much that we can get into, but I'm just trying to narrow it down to three key things. The first one, again, as it was referenced, Nephi has shown so many things in this vision. He's shown the birth of Christ, his connection to the tree, the meaning of the rod of iron, the symbolism of the great and spacious building, which are all great things to look at and to go and find in Mark. But he's then also shown the history of the world. He, he sees what happens to his people. He sees the colonization of the Americas, the Revolutionary War, the coming forth of the Book of Mormon and the restoration of the gospel and the Lord's kingdom in the latter days. And then he has also shown the events of the second coming, although he doesn't and is commanded not to write about those. But there are some things that he understands throughout the course of this vision and some things that he clearly does not. And that's where I want to start with today. 
One of those things that he does not quite understand or fully comprehend comes at the very beginning when he is asked by the angel or by the Spirit of God if he understands the condescension of God. His answer is simple and yet so profound. And it's one that would be good for every one of us, especially you young people, to know, to understand, and to be able to answer yourself. It's one that you and I will need to fall back on multiple times in our own lives when we don't fully understand everything. In that particular moment, his answer in chapter 11, verse 17 is simply this. I know that God loveth his children. Nevertheless, I do not know the meaning of all things. Will you go in and make sure that you have that marked, maybe even underlined? And I want you to think of the beautiful lesson that is taught in that simple statement. I don't understand what this is, is what Nephi is saying. I don't understand what it means. I don't understand why it's happening or even how it happened. But what I do know is that God loveth his children. So there must be a good reason for it. Or at the very least, he will help me until I can make sense of it because I know that he loves me. And that, for right now, is enough. That love allows us to more fully submit our will to His. To accept the difficult things that happen to us with patience. To accept those difficult things that God asks of us to place on His altar at different times throughout our lives. Elder Maxwell, in one of my favorite quotes, said this, I'm going to preach a hard doctrine to you now. The submission of one's will is really the only uniquely personal thing we have to place on God's altar. It's a hard doctrine, but it is true. The many other things that we give to God, however nice that may be of us, are actually things He has already given us, and He has loaned them to us. But when we begin to submit ourselves by letting our wills be swallowed up in God's will, then we are really giving something to Him. And that hard doctrine lies at the center of discipleship. And he he then said this, Remember Nephi's meek acceptance of God's will. I know that God loveth his children. Nevertheless, I do not know the meaning of all things. We don't know the meaning of all things, but we know that God loves us, and that is sufficient to get us by and through anything. Gosh, I love that statement. And I can tell you from personal experience, I have fallen back on that so many times. There have been so many things that have happened in my life personally that I didn't understand, I didn't fully comprehend. And I had to just fall back on the truth and the doctrine that God loves me. (laughs) And that's got to be enough to sustain me through it for now. Until one day when I do come to understand and know the meaning of all things. In chapter 11, uh, that, that same chapter, verse 21, Nephi is asked by the Spirit of God, Knowest thou the meaning of the tree which thy father saw? Verse 22 says, And I answered him, saying, Yea, it is the love of God which sheddeth itself abroad in the hearts of the children of man. Wherefore, it is the most desirable above all other things. And the Spirit answered and said, Yea, and most joyous to the soul. This whole beginning part of the chapter in Nephi's vision is about God's love as expressed through Christ. 
Nephi later records in 2 Nephi 26, 24, and this is a great cross-referencing scripture for you to write in there. He, he writes this about what he has come to learn about God and God's love. He said that he, God, doeth not anything, save it be for the benefit of the world. For he loveth the world, even that he layeth down his own life, that he may draw all men unto him. Everything that God does is for our benefit. He can take any difficult or hard or painful experience that we have and turn it into something for our good, for our growth, and for our benefit. His love for us is one of the central components in this vision and in Nephi's faith. But one thing I want to point out to you, especially you young people, is that at times it can be so easy, ironically, to miss seeing God's love for us in our lives. I remember on multiple occasions having students come up to me and thanking me for a particular lesson that I taught that day, that it was something that they just needed to hear just then, that it was the right thing at the right time, maybe even something that they had prayed for. And I had to point out to them this truth. I told them, I appreciate you acknowledging that the lesson that I taught as being impactful and helpful, but is it possible? And I remember having this conversation with one student in particular because of the reaction afterwards. I remember telling her, is it possible that the reason that I prepared what I prepared and shared what I shared is that it wasn't coming from me, but, but maybe God knew in advance that this was something that you needed in that moment. And so he expressed his love for you through me and through this lesson by giving me thoughts and ideas and, and directions on, on how to teach it. Is it possible that this lesson didn't come from me, but that it came from him? And when I finished saying that statement, I think it opened her heart and her mind to recognize the love that was being shared with her, not by me, but, by from, a, but from a loving Heavenly Father. I watched as her eyes filled with tears. She started to shake her head. Yeah, I think you're right, Brother Downs, is what she's able to get out. I think you're right. This lesson wasn't just from you, but it was from my Heavenly Father who loves me. I believe God shows his love to us most often through others. And sometimes that can be the reason why we miss it. I mean, after all, isn't the greatest love that he's shown through us, shown through Christ and giving us him as his son for a sacrifice? And he continues to show that love to us and express that love to us through others. I remember President Dieter F. Uchtdorf teaching a wonderful truth. He said, a story is told that during the bombing of a city in World War II, a large statue of Jesus Christ was severely damaged. When the townspeople found the statue among the rubble, they mourned because it had been a beloved symbol of their faith and of God's presence in their lives. Experts were able to repair most of the statue, but its hands had been damaged so severely that they could not be restored. Some suggested they hire a sculptor to make new hands. But others wanted to leave it as it was, a permanent reminder of the tragedy of the war. Ultimately, the statue remained without hands. However, the people of the city added to the base of the statue of Jesus Christ a sign with these words, You are my hands. <laughs> he also went on to say, Every person that we meet is a VIP to our Heavenly Father. Once we understand that, we can begin to understand how we should treat our fellow men. 
Again, I think that's an important aspect to remember of God's love, is that His love often is best expressed through others, which means we have the opportunity to be His hands, and there are many times that we have experienced His hands in our lives through others, or experienced His love. And those are the questions I want you to consider most today from this particular principle. Number one, what has been something that has happened to you that you do not understand the reason maybe why it did? And if there has been something, how can you apply Nephi's statement and Elder Maxwell's quote to it? How can knowing that God loves you be sufficient to get you through anything? How can you be reminded of that love when you are going through hard things or whenever you're feeling down? Who is there in your life that needs to be reminded of God's love for them? And what can you do to share God's love with others and help them to know that God cares about them, to be His hands for them? How have you felt God's love for you through others? How have you felt His love for you through another person recently? It's important that we see this because it happens and can happen on a daily basis because God loves us just that much. Now, principle two is one that I particularly love, that I want to focus on. And it begins in chapter 13, where Nephi begins to see the restoration of the gospel. And in particular, the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. Verse 40 is going to be a key to this principle. Again, in this chapter, Nephi sees the establishment of the Americas and the influence of the Bible in helping those early colonists to prosper in the land. He references that he sees a book carried among them. Which book is the Bible? That A book in verse 23 that contains the covenants of the Lord and many of the prophecies of the holy prophets. The love for God's word as found in the Bible had a huge impact on the prosperity of those that settled this country. However, in verse 26, it's pointed out that the great and abominable church have taken away many of the plain and precious parts of the gospel and also many of the covenants of the Lord as found in this book. In verse 27, that they might blind the eyes and harden the hearts of the children of men. So what is God's answer to that? Well, his answer is in verse 35 and 36 of chapter 13, where he says, For behold, saith the Lamb, I will manifest myself unto thy seed, that they shall write many things which shall minister, which I shall minister unto them, which shall be plain and precious. And after thy seed shall be destroyed, and dwindle in unbelief, and also the seed of thy brethren, behold, these things shall be hid up to come forth unto the Gentiles by the gift and power of the Lamb. And in them shall be written my gospel, saith the Lamb, and my rock, and my salvation. And then we get to this great verse in verse 40, one of the most profound verses as it relates to the purpose of the Book of Mormon. Verse 40, the Lord says, And these last records, referencing the Book of Mormon, will do certain things. I want you to go through and mark these three things that the Lord points out the Book of Mormon will do. Number one, he says, is that it will establish the truth of the first, being the Bible. Number two, that it shall make known the plain and precious things which have been taken away from them. And number three, and shall make known to all kindreds, tongues, and people that the Lamb of God is the Son of the Eternal Father and the Savior of the world, and that all men must come unto Him or they cannot be saved. Then there's a little bit of a clarifying statement in verse 41, and they must come according to the words. (laughs) 
boy, just from that verse, the value of the Book of Mormon to us cannot be overstated. It may, in fact, be one of the most valuable possessions that we have because of those three reasons. Elder Holland gave a talk, as I'm sure many of you know, uh, all about the Book of Mormon, titled The Safety for the Soul. And in that talk, he referenced that for 179 years, this book has been examined and attacked, denied and deconstructed, targeted and torn apart like perhaps no other book in modern religious history. Perhaps like no other book in any religious history. And still it stands. Failed theories about its origins have been born and paroded and have died. From Ethan Smith to Solomon Spaulding to deranged, paranoid to cunning genius, none of these frankly pathetic answers for this book has ever withstood examination because there's no other answer than the one that Joseph gave as its young, unlearned translator. He said, In this I stand with my own great-grandfather, who simply said enough, No wicked man could write such a book as this, and no good man would write it unless it were true and he were commanded of God to do so. I testify, he said, that one cannot come to full faith in this latter-day work and thereby find the fullest measure of peace and comfort in these our times until he or she embraces the divinity of the Book of Mormon and the Lord Jesus Christ of whom it testifies. He said, I ask that my testimony of the Book of Mormon and all that it implies, given today under my own oath and office, be recorded by men on earth and angels in heaven. I hope I have a few years left in my last days, but whether I do or not, I want it absolutely clear when I stand before the judgment bar of God that I declared to the world in the most straightforward language I could summon that the Book of Mormon is true, that it came forth the way Joseph said it came forth and was given to bring happiness and hope to the faithful in the travail of these latter days. I have always loved Elder Holland's testimony of this book and am so grateful for my own. And I have seen throughout my life the fulfillment of this particular verse, verse 40, how the Book of Mormon does in fact establish the truth of the Bible, how it makes known the plain and precious things which have been taken from it, and how it makes known to everyone that reads it that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God, the Son of the Eternal Father and Savior of the world, and that we all must come unto Him or we cannot be saved. And then even more so, as is recorded in verse 41, the Book of Mormon contains the way that we are to come unto Christ. Again, we are reminded here as to why this book is so important to us. The way that we hold it, the way that we treat it, the attention that we give it, in many ways reflects the attention and the love and the faith that we have in Christ. I'd often joke around with my students whenever we'd talk about dating and some of the the dangers and pitfalls that are often associated with that, that wouldn't it be great if before you dated someone, you could ask them to see their scriptures, (laughs) to see how well they had marked them, to try to see if you could discover how much they've read them. Oh, you only have one verse marked in your entire Book of Mormon. I'm sorry, we cannot go out uh, on a date. (laughs) I kind of make light of that, but the truth is, Young people, if you want to find someone that has the best potential to love you in the right way, then find someone that is in the process of learning to love God in the right way. Find somebody that holds tightly to their Book of Mormon, and you will find somebody that will hold tightly to you. Here's a few questions for you to consider from this principle. Number one, how does the Book of Mormon add to the validity of the Bible? 
What are some of the plain and precious truths that the Book of Mormon has restored to the earth? How has it fulfilled its primary purpose in bearing testimony and being a witness of Jesus Christ? What has it taught you about how to come unto Christ? What is one of your favorite verses about Christ from the Book of Mormon? For the last principle today, we're going to take a look at chapter 14, verse 7, where Nephi is shown and taught about the restoration. He sees the prophet Joseph and the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. And it's recorded in this verse, that for the time cometh, saith the Lamb of God, that I will work a work among the children of men, which is marvelous, a work which shall be everlasting, either on the one hand or on the other, either to the convincing of them unto peace and life eternal, or unto the deliverance of their hearts and the blindness of their minds, into their being brought down into captivity, and also into destruction, both temporally and spiritually, according to the captivity of the devil." Now, I love referencing the word that God uses here and in the Doctrine and Covenants multiple times to describe the work that he is going to do in the latter days, especially with the Book of Mormon. Whenever he speaks, it's important to pay attention to every single word that he uses because, well, he's God and he doesn't just say things by happenstance. Now, to put this particular word that we'll draw attention to in just a moment into better context, I want to look at a couple of the words that he uses in the creation. When God created the world and everything in it, it's recorded that he looked at everything that he had created and he said, and I, God, saw that it was good. Now, I'm not sure that good is the word that I would use if I were to create a world and everything that's in it and on it. In fact, I'm not even sure there is a word that I could use to describe how amazing that would be. But to God, who's done this a few times, he uses the word good. However, ironically, after creating Eve or a woman, which, by the way, was the crowning event, the crowning creation in the creative process, he then said, and I, God, looked and saw that it was very good. He adds a little clarifier to this good. It's not just good, but it's very good, which, by the way, there's a lesson in that for us men, especially but now, pay attention, what is the word that he uses back in 1 Nephi 14.7 about the work that he is about to do that involves the coming forth of the Book of Mormon and the restoration of the gospel that will follow? Do you see it? The word is marvelous. Boy, make sure you mark that word, underline it. Can you see his message here? Because we can't miss it. Creating worlds, creating animals, creating people is good, and at times very good. But the work of saving them, now that is marvelous. What does that say about his confidence in saving his children? What does that say about his confidence in this plan that he's put together for us? What does it say about his confidence in saving you and I, even with all of our mistakes and flaws? In the Doctrine and Covenants, as I reference, in section after section, at the beginning of the Doctrine and Covenants, God repeatedly says, Now behold, a marvelous work is about to come forth. That phrase again is repeated over and over until the Book of Mormon is finished and published. What does this say about the importance, once again, of this book that we're studying this year? What does it say about the importance of reading it and studying it and the role that it can and will play in connecting us to Christ and therefore saving us? 
back when I was teaching seminary and at the beginning of the year, whenever we would go over the plan of salvation, which we always would at the beginning of the year, I would ask my kids to put their heads down on the desk and just to raise their hand when I asked them which of the three kingdoms they thought they would most likely go to. I would start out by asking how many thought that they were going to go to the telestial kingdom, which ironically most would raise their hands for. I'd then ask about the terrestrial kingdom, and a few would raise their hand for that one. And then I'd ask about the celestial kingdom, and maybe one or two, if that, would raise their hand. Now, that kind of thinking has to change in all of us. Because God is better than that. The scriptures record that when the plan of salvation was presented, that we, all of us, shouted for joy. The morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy, is what Job records in Job 38.7. Now, do you think that we would really have all shouted for joy if we would have thought that most of us wouldn't be making it back (laughs) to the celestial kingdom to live with God? I could see maybe a a low, spattered applause, but certainly not all of us shouting for joy, if that were to be the case. What about if half of us would make it? Well, maybe there'd be a little bit more applause and a few random cheers. But then we're looking at those closest to us and thinking, there's a 50-50 chance that I won't be seeing half of you. God is amazing at everything that he does. Wouldn't it be the same with his plan? It literally is his work and his glory. We must remember and we must firmly believe that the plan of salvation, the great plan of happiness, was designed to work. Indeed, it would not be called the eternal plan of salvation, of happiness, redemption, mercy, deliverance, etc. if it did not work. Particularly if its primary effect was the damnation of the vast majority of God's children. Oh, and not to mention, do you think that Heavenly Mother would have allowed such a plan to be put in place, a plan that would keep her from the majority of her children? Ask any mother how they would answer that question, how they'd feel about that kind of a plan. Elder B.H. Roberts wrote on the subject, he said, It's not unlikely that the shouting of all the sons of God for joy at the creation of the earth was in consequence of the prospects which opened before these spirits because of the earth life and the salvation that would come to them through the gospel even in the prospects of that eternal life which God, that cannot lie, promised before the world began. Clearly, those of us who shouted for joy sensed that what God was telling us was good and desirable. Clearly, we felt that the odds were in our favor. There is no sense of foreboding or fear present in the language of Scripture. We shouted for joy, not out of fear. If... Heavenly Father had informed us that, hey, there's good and bad news here, and that the good news is there's a plan, but the bad news is that most of you are not going to make it back, (laughs) surely we would not have felt reason to rejoice and to shout for joy. But that's not what happened. Heavenly Father literally introduced to us good news, the good news that he had a plan that would readily make us like him, and the good news that Christ would be sent to atone for our weaknesses and failings. We saw this as a win-win situation. We knew we wouldn't be perfect, but we knew that the Father's plan would provide a remedy for that. All too often, 
Many of us assume that only a small select few will return to the Father's presence, there to dwell with Him for time and eternity. Yes, and only the select will have the honor and privilege of doing so, but who is it that the Father has selected for this great blessing? Well, our answer is simply all of His children. I mean, Heavenly Father desires that all be exalted, not just saved, but exalted. He desires that all return to Him and dwell with Him for eternity. He made it clear in the Grand Council before the world was that the plan has the power and potential to exalt all of us, not just a few lucky ones or a small number of the exceedingly faithful. Indeed, modern prophetic declarations make it quite clear that more of God's children will be exalted than will be lost. In 1976, Elder Bruce R. McConkie said this to a group of religious educational system employees gathered in Salt Lake City. He said, You tell your students that far more of our Father's children will be exalted than we think. All faithful Latter-day Saints, those who chart their course toward eternal life, receive the ordinances of salvation and strive with all their hearts to be true to their covenants, will gain eternal life. Even though they are certainly not perfect when they die, if they have sought to stay on course in covenant, in harmony with the mind and will of God, they will be saved in the highest heaven. We ought to have hope, and we need to be positive and optimistic about attaining that glory. Our God and Father is a successful parent, one who will save far more of his children than he will lose. Now, personally, I think Nephi knew a little bit about God, and he knew a little bit about this plan of salvation of his. And I want you to listen, based on his experience in all of these things, how much faith he has in God and his plan for him and for all of us, including his knuckleheaded brothers, Laban and Lemuel. In the last chapter of Nephi's writings, as a part of his final testimony, he says this, and I love this statement. In 2 Nephi chapter 33, verse 12, he says, And I pray the Father in the name of Christ that many of us, if not all, may be saved in his kingdom at that great and last day. With all that Nephi has seen and experienced, with the relationship that he's developed with God over the course of his life as a wonderful man, individual, and as a prophet, there's something that he has learned through the course of all of it that allowed him to hold on to hope and to say that many of us, if not all, may be saved in his kingdom. Nephi had great hope in God's amazing plan, enough to say what he said in that verse. So don't ever lose hope, especially you young people, that you can make it, that you're going to make it, because God's work is marvelous. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland reminds us, However late you think you are, however many chances you think you've missed, however many mistakes you feel that you've made or talents you think you don't have, or distance from home and family and God that you feel you've traveled, I testify that you have not traveled beyond the reach of divine love. In so many ways, that seems to be the theme of this vision, of this week's study, and of the Book of Mormon in general. Now, some key questions for you to consider about this principle. Number one, how much faith do you have in God's plan of salvation for you personally? I think that's a great thing to consider. Do you believe that you can and will make it to the celestial kingdom? I hope you do. If not, begin to change that belief and that thinking. 
Do you believe that God is good at what he's doing? That he is good in his work and his glory? Do you believe that he is a successful parent? Do you believe that he can and will save you? How can you develop greater hope and faith in God's plan for you? If the Book of Mormon is that central to that marvelous work that he is doing and that he will do in the future, how can you make it more central in your life now? How can you use it to help others find hope in their prospects for eternal life? Do you see why the Book of Mormon is so central in the missionary work and efforts of the church? We are not just bringing scriptures to God's children. We are bringing his plan of salvation to them through it. And lastly, what is your favorite term for God's plan and why? There's the plan of salvation, plan of redemption, plan of happiness, plan of mercy, plan of deliverance, and many others. Which is your favorite and why? Now, as one bonus principle before we end today, I can't leave Nephi's vision without pointing this out. The vision that Nephi had was open to him because he prayed, believing that he could receive an answer. And then if you remember, that answer came to him while he was doing something. And that something was pondering. Now, if you haven't marked that, go back to verse 1 and make sure you do, where Nephi says, as I sat pondering in my heart, that's when the vision was opened to him. Pondering is becoming a lost art. The ability to quiet your mind and to just simply think, to reflect on, to consider. The ability to quiet everything around you so that you can think. I want you to think about how many opportunities we have on a daily basis to ponder. And I mean to really ponder. Have you noticed how silence is becoming more and more uncomfortable to us? In fact, whenever there's silence, what do we tend to do? Well, we fill it with noise. We turn on the TV. We put on our headphones and listen to music. We text. We, we read the news. We email. Rarely do we just sit and ponder in silence over spiritual matters. Yet pondering is what opened this vision to Nephi. Pondering over a scripture is what led Joseph into the woods to pray. Pondering again and again is what brought revelation after revelation to Joseph and many prophets after him. Pondering is why we go to the temple. It's one of the few places on earth where we can quiet our minds and our surroundings enough to receive impressions and directions from God. Make time to ponder. Make time to meditate over your questions, prayers, and desires. Give God the opportunity to speak back to you and to show you what it is that you've been praying for. Instead of always listening to music when you drive, maybe try turning it off once in a while and just think. Take time some mornings and evenings to just ponder quietly over the day, over what you've studied and learned, over questions you've had, over what you've prayed for. Journaling is a powerful way to ponder, and some of the greatest spiritual impressions have come to me while writing in my journal about things that I've learned and experienced, especially when it comes from the scriptures. Elder Marvin J. Ashton of the Quorum of Twelve Apostles taught that by pondering, we give the Spirit an opportunity to impress and direct. Pondering is a powerful link between the heart and the mind. As we read the scriptures, our hearts and minds are touched. If we use the gift to ponder, we can take these eternal truths and realize how we can incorporate them into our daily actions. I wanted to take a moment just to share that with you because one of the primary functions of the Book of Mormon 
is to testify that of God's willingness to manifest himself to us. But one of the ways that he often does that is in quiet moments as we ponder, as we reflect. And if we are not providing those moments and opportunities for ourselves, then we may miss some vital direction and revelation that God would love to give us had we been in a state of, of place and of being that he could. Young people, don't be afraid of silence. Don't be afraid to turn off the radio, turn off the television, and just think. You'll be surprised at the impressions that will come to your mind as you do. Now, hopefully that's been helpful this week. Again, there's so much in there. I hope that you continue to find just some amazing truths, doctrines, and principles for yourself. And don't forget, if you'd like to access this week's study and teaching guide, that you can directly through my website by purchasing it directly or by subscribing to a monthly subscription where you'll get access to all of the, the teaching and study guides throughout the month. If there are any friends or family that you feel can benefit from this particular episode and podcast, please share it with them. As always, remember that that person is greatest and most blessed and joyful whose life most closely approaches the pattern of the Christ. This has nothing to do with earthly wealth, power, or prestige. The only true test of greatness, blessedness, joyfulness is how close a life can come to being like the Master Jesus Christ. He is the right way, the full truth, and the abundant life, and he invites us all to come follow me. So, as always, let's follow him better this week and become better as we follow him. Until next week, everyone, I'm Josh Downs, and you've been listening to Come Follow Me for Teens.